Welcome to the Alchemical Mind. I'm back, kind of. Those of you that listen to the podcast regularly, or at least started recently, or that follow me on Twitter are fully aware that I just went on a solo meditation retreat. So I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about the experience of going on such an adventure, and uh, I will say it is quite the adventure. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the things that I did to prepare for the experience, uh, what I did, or probably better said, did not do during this uh, solo meditation retreat, and kind of uh, gloss over a little bit the takeaways from the experience. And uh, and the reason I say gloss over what I gained from the experience is that uh, I gained a lot from doing this this retreat. And uh, it's going to be, <laughs> it's probably going to take me a dozen episodes to go over uh, all the takeaways that I got from uh, these couple of days that I was away. So this is going to be a very personal episode. As always, when I talk about some of these things, don't uh, don't take them as dogma. Don't uh, don't get offended by anything that I say. Don't uh, don't take anything that I say as pure fact. This is all solely based on my personal experience, and uh, and this will be a, a couple of personal episodes, really, because as a result of going through this solo meditation retreat. I have finally decided to talk about uh, one of my really major psychedelic experiences. So the next episode of the podcast is going to be me discussing this experience that I had uh, roughly a year and a half ago now. So I uh, hope you enjoy it. And if you've undergone some of these uh, solo meditation retreats or anything similar to that, I hope you will chime in and give me some of your thoughts on uh, on the experience you can find me on twitter at mind alchemical instagram the alchemical mind com and you can always always email me martin at the alchemical mind.com so my my hope my goal my ultimate expectation i guess you could say was to go on this retreat for where, seven days i know that's not something that anybody can do i'm fortunate enough right now that i have not much to do except uh, think about these things and, uh, and and have these experiences. So I, I firmly understand that, and I, I don't expect anyone to uh, get up and go and, and do a solo meditation retreat. Uh, for one, it's uh, it's it's extremely difficult, as uh, as I'll talk about as I get into the experience, and and requires a lot of preparation in advance. Even though I originally wanted to do these seven days, I I did not know how I would feel going through it. I didn't know kind of the the things that I would experience, kind of what the the ego backlash would be, and I think uh, that's something that I'm going to talk about a little bit as well because there's there's definitely some ego backlash, and those of you that have had maybe a psychedelic experience of some sort may fully understand what I'm referring to in terms of ego backlash. Uh, but it's it's kind of when you when you start to realize certain things about yourself and uh, realize that some of the stuff makes no sense 
your your ego kind of doesn't want to let go of those things and uh, pushes back and pushes back really really hard. I'm gonna talk a little bit more about this on the next episode when I talk about this uh, psychedelic mystical experience. But uh, it's it's a very difficult thing to to undergo. But I knew that I for sure could do the three days, and I would do anything in my power to make sure I lasted three days. The The reason for that was that I wanted to have some takeaways from this experience. And I knew that in the event of some sort of ego backlash experience that I could, I could at least last that amount of time. So I did last those those three days, and uh, this is... This is kind of what I took away from the experience. Now, my original intent for this particular uh, solo retreat was to go up to the woods, uh, actually go up in, uh, to the woods in a mountain about an hour and a half away from here. When when the time came, I realized that maybe it wasn't such a good idea with pandemic stuff going on, so I wanted to find someplace closer to home. And fortunately, next to the subdivision where I live, there is a, a very large plot of land uh, that I knew I could go into. Because when I, when I enter my subdivision many times, especially very early in the morning or later in the afternoon, I see deer crossing the, uh, the entrance and going into this, uh, this plot of land. Uh, it's, a, it's a fairly large plot of land. It's uh, about 150 acres, uh, all wooded. And uh, there is a river that flows through the area, so I figured that'd be a kind of a, a nice place. It would be very close to home, so I wouldn't have to drive anywhere. I could just walk over and uh, get my get my place situated, my tent going, and uh, that was that was my original plan. So on the day that I decided to to go uh, to find a spot, I, I did not check this place out beforehand. I, uh, I started walking through the woods and I found a nice trail so obviously people do walk in here sometimes uh, I've seen some of my neighbors take their golf carts or whatever up there uh, I'm pretty sure my next-door neighbor must go deer hunting down there because I, I did see some supplies and stuff along the way but uh, I started w walking through this trail and uh, looking for a flat spot to uh, pitch my tent so every time I would come upon one I would go up there and check it out see kind of uh, how I would be able to get out of there, would I be able to find my way back to the trail easily, uh, what was the uh, the general atmosphere of the place, right, were there a lot of animals there, were there trees, were there dead trees, falling limbs, things like that. Uh, I wanted to make sure I, I was in a safe place, and, and that's the most important thing if you if you decide to partake in this kind of solo meditation is uh, to make sure that you're in a safe place. Because uh, you you will be very vulnerable uh, once you actually decide to uh, set up your camp. This is true of you know, any time you go into the wild. So this is uh, probably nothing new for those of you that actually go hiking and things like that. But I, I wanted to make sure I was in a good spot. And uh, you know I, I walked probably about 15-20 minutes on this trail, and there weren't really any really good spots that I wanted to pitch my tent. Uh, but I finally found one. I started setting my tent up. And uh, I noticed the ground moving underneath me, and I looked down, and there were literally fire ants all over my equipment. Uh, they had started crawling up my legs, and uh, I quickly decided this was probably not the best place. 
So I grabbed all my stuff, kept on going down the trail, and uh, I did this a couple of times, uh, two other times in fact, and every time I found a good flat spot to uh, set up my tent, uh, it was just mounds and mounds of fire ants. Uh, when I say mounds, I mean like tons of them. There, there weren't ant mounds, they were just coming out of the ground. So I, I decided this was maybe not, uh, not the best place to do it, and I thought I might have to go and, uh, and drive the hour and a half to the mountains, uh, because I, I was dead set on doing this. And so I, I, I walked back home and uh, came in, and my wife's like, what are you doing? I, I thought you were going to do your, your retreat. And I said, well, I, I explained to her the whole situation and uh, how I was going to go out into uh, to this mountain. And she said, well, why don't you just go to uh, near my parents' house? So uh, her parents have, well, they don't live there now, but her family has lived in this area for like 200 years. And they, they own a very large plot of land, uh, hundreds of acres. And it is divided evenly among several members of the family. Uh, so she's like, you know, go up there and see if you can find a place. So I thought that was probably actually a, a pretty good idea. I uh, head out there. I talked to her uncle when I got there, and he's like, "You're you're doing what?" And I said, "I'm I'm doing this solo retreat. I'm gonna be pitching a tent in the woods for a couple of days." And uh, you know, he gave me a couple spots where I can go look at. And he said, "Well, you know, this so such and such person, a member of the family, has a a trailer in the woods, and she recently passed away last week. Like, there's nobody there. You know, why don't you just go by the trailer?" So he gave me directions, and I, I headed out there, and it was it was pretty simple, though I I couldn't find the entrance to this field. Uh, as it turns out, the family and and friends use this particular area for deer hunting, so uh, there's a couple blinds set up, and uh, I thought it'd be a, a pretty good place to do it. So it's uh the, the field's fairly large; it's probably about uh, ten acres or so of just grassland, and then it's surrounded by uh, trees. And then off on the right-hand side, I could see the trailer. So I started looking for a, a good spot to pitch the tent. And I, I did. I found a good one. It was uh, kind of away from the trail a little bit, but uh, easy enough where I could get out. I was able to park my vehicle out there and uh, set up the tent, and I was good to go. And and one thing that I I should have known, because it is you know July and I am in the southeastern United States, so it is very hot. It, uh, it's been in the mid to high 90s. Uh, I'm not sure what that is in Celsius for the, uh, the overseas folks. But it, it's, it's scalding hot. It's scalding hot. And uh, I wasn't planning on that, so I found kind of a, a shaded spot to uh, set up my tent. And there, were so, there was a table and some chairs near where this trailer was set up. Uh, and that was all shaded. So I knew if anything, I could go and sit at, uh, at this location. Uh, so I, I really enjoyed it. I liked the spot a lot. It was very quiet. Uh, there was a there was a little lizard that kept on trying to climb up my tent the entire time that I was there. So uh, I would just be sitting there either in meditation or just kind of looking up into the sky, and uh, and I would hear you know the little lizard climbing up the tent. But but it was nice. It was it was a good place. So I I arrived there probably about noon. I'm still fairly early. Uh, I think the drive is probably about 45 minutes to an hour to get to this place. Uh, but I, I left early enough anyway where it wasn't that big a deal. And uh, i got to say the first day was was really difficult. It was very hard. I've uh, I've never done a solo meditation retreat. 
I know usually when people do these kind of retreats, they go to like a place that houses retreats, right? Where you have a schedule that you keep and, you know, you have very light meals. And, you know, even though you're by yourself, there's other people around. And, uh, and I don't have any of that. I don't have any of that. I, I hadn't a, a schedule prepared. The only thing I knew is that uh, I was going to be fasting for three days. And uh, I made sure I took some water. I didn't want to do a dry fast because uh, because of the heat. You know, it's in the in the 90s. So I, I wanted to have the full experience, but I didn't want to uh, have the, the stereotypical mystical experience where somebody would go into the desert or into a, a cave and uh, not eat or drink for 40 days or whatever, right? I, I wanted it to be something a little closer to like what a vision quest would be, the Native American vision quest, where they're not uh, very long-term, and but you know you don't have supplies or anything like that. You're just kind of placed in uh, in an area of the wild to fend for yourself. And uh, and so I did take some water. Uh, I took one gallon of water. I wanted to have that one gallon last me the entire the entire time that I was going to be there. Uh, the first day was very hard though. You know, like I said, I got there about noon, so it was uh, kind of the hard, hottest part of the day. And it was a little difficult to get acclimated to just being out in the blazing heat. I uh, I got there and I started doing, I did a little bit of meditation for about 30 minutes or so. I assume, I don't know, because I uh, turned my phone off. I left it in, in my vehicle. I, I don't wear a watch. So I, I, all I know about time is kind of what I would notice around me. And I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit as well. But the first day was very hard, and uh, I thought the best thing to do maybe was just to kind of acclimate myself, and I spent uh, a large chunk of the day, the remainder of the day, uh, sitting in my tent, again, either meditating or just kind of staring out into the sky, and I found myself falling asleep a couple of times, and I don't know if it was just from the heat or because I was actually physically tired. Uh, e either of those two are possible, could be a combination of both, but I did find myself falling asleep uh, probably about two or three times during the remainder of the day, and uh, you know when I would wake up, be like, oh, I was kind of asleep. I should pay attention. The point is not to come out here and take naps. The point is to kind of come out here and do nothing, and and that was my only plan. That was my only plan. I I wanted to have the experience of simply existing the experience of simply existing and i know that sounds maybe a little weird to some but i'm sure most of you listening to this podcast if you're listening to this you you kind of understand what i'm referring to when i say the experience of existing because you know every day you're always doing something even if you're doing nothing, chances are you're still doing something, right? You're watching TV, and maybe you know you get a notification on your phone. You pick that up. You uh, you go and outside and maybe do a meditation, and there's a fly buzzing around. So maybe you swat the fly, or you wipe the sweat off your brow, or you know you're you're sitting in contemplation and hands are moving, or you start fidgeting your foot, or you know your leg starts moving around. You're, you're always doing something. And, and I wanted to practice just full mindful awareness of whatever it was that I was going to be experiencing there. So, of course, because I'm just always used to doing something, 
the the first day was the hardest of the entire experience because I felt like I needed to be doing something. And what I was doing was absolutely nothing. I was just either sitting or laying down. And and I found myself oftentimes kind of just moving partially because, you know, like my butt would start hurting from sitting or you know, maybe my leg would fall asleep from being a certain position and I would move to kind of get comfortable again. But at the same time starting to realize like I I don't want to be doing anything. I, I just want to be here. And and part of me kind of went over that experience of just moving my leg or sitting in a different position as like, hey, I just need to be comfortable because this is a, an uncomfortable experience. But part of me also realized like that wasn't necessarily the point of the whole thing. So there, there was some fidgeting. There was uh, later on in the evening kind of a, a difficult time concentrating on doing nothing, uh, being mindful of just sitting and, you know, falling asleep again, things like that. Now, when, when nighttime came around, it was a little bit easier. Uh, again, I assume because the heat kind of died down a little bit, so it was easier to just be in this place. But uh, but it's when I started to realize how peaceful it was here, right? I, I had been here for a few hours already. I kind of knew the things that were going on around me. I kind of sort of knew the, the types of uh, animals that were here, like what the animals and the insects and stuff were doing as I was just sitting there. And so I think I became a little bit more comfortable in just being in this place. And and once that happened, I started being more comfortable in just simply being. And and I got to tell you, just being is it's very hard. Very hard. I think I think part of the reason that we get so tied up in in constant chatter and and by chatter i mean both mental and and physical not just you know talking is that we're very uncomfortable with just simply existing i think there's something inherent about the way society conditions us to walk through the everyday path that kind of forces us to feel like we're not enough if we're not constantly moving. It's like you feel if you just sit there, you're you're letting yourself down, number one. You're letting other people down because you should be doing something, right? You should be providing for your spouse or your children. You should be trying to do better at work you should be trying to learn something in school or doing your homework or you know getting better at your hobby you always want to get better at something and so because of that it's just so hard to to be with yourself i think i think there's something really interesting about human psychology that i realized during this this process this experience that I've kind of had floating around in my mind for a couple months now, I would say. And and I don't know what the exact event is. But I feel like there must be some, some really deep-seated 
psychological trauma within all of us and and I can't quite place if it's inherent to our physiology and our psychology or if it's something that somebody experienced and then just continuously passed on from generation to generation into what has become our, our society or culture. I, I can't quite place that. And I, I want to say more the, the latter than the former because of some of the things that I experienced during these uh, these few days in, in, in the woods by myself. There must have been some some really traumatic event in past history that has made us get to this place after thousands of years and you know some of you that uh, know me personally uh, may be aware that I I love stuff about ancient civilizations ancient cultures and and one of the most fascinating things uh, that I like about that topic is the topic of uh, global catastrophes for example and, and there's plenty of podcasts you can listen to. You can listen to uh, Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape or Brothers of the Serpent, Cosmographia, uh, Where Did the Road Go? There's tons of places that, that kind of talk about uh, some of these things. You can look up the Younger Dryas period, for example. I'm not sure if that's exactly it, but, but events like this that really reshape society in, in a very traumatic way. And, and, of course, the people that live through these experiences – have some deep-seated psychological trauma that they end up passing on to subsequent generations and it just gets exacerbated because it's a thing that was experienced by the previous generation and it, it creates a culture around it and, you know we get these kind of traumatic events all the time right there's there's war and, and famine and stuff like that all the time and even those events aren't traumatic enough like think about uh, you know think about world war ii for example that was a, a major global event, shaped a, a lot of lives. It reshaped a lot of government and, and societal norms and expectations of people. You know, World War II was only, what, 75 years, 80 years ago? And a lot of the current generation has forgotten a lot of the things that some older generations might have learned from that experience. You know, I still have people in, in our family that went through the Great Depression, for example. They're, they're much older. There's very few left. But, uh, but there are some of those people. And there's people in subsequent generations, their children and their grandchildren, that kind of based their way of life around some of these things of, you know, not throwing away every paper napkin, right? Or, you know... I don't know, do people still use cloth diapers, you know, re-washing diapers instead of buying disposable ones? Because you never know when the next one will come. This is the kind of traumatic event that I'm kind of talking about, right? There must have been something really massive at some point in our history. And, you know, there's obviously tons of, tons of evidence for that kind of thing in uh, asteroid impacts, craters, you know, ice caps melting global warming and and by that I don't mean like man-made global warming I mean natural warming and cooling cycles suns going supernova maybe things like that right these big events that just caused so much trauma in the past 
that we have continued to exacerbate those things. And so as a result, we find it very difficult to just, just be happy with being. That, it's so weird to say that, right? Because everyone always just, everyone wants to be happy, right? You want to be happy. You want to have a good life. You want your, your family to be well taken care of. You want yourself to be well taken care of. You want to have good health. You want to feel loved. You want to feel cared for. You want to be appreciated at work. All these things are things that we strive for. But one thing I realize is that none of those things really matter. None of those things really matter. And I'm going to get into it a little bit more as I get into this discussion further. But, uh, you know, that was kind of the first day. Just realizing how hard it is to be by yourself and not just by yourself but with yourself because there's nothing else around i mean sure there's like bugs and lizards and birds and there were deer out there i'm sure i know that area there's a lot of wild boar so i'm sure there were some wild boar running around the woods at some point but in terms of the the exterior facade that we live in I'm going to start using some of these words because really this is how I feel after going through this experience. So this just illusionary connection between all people makes it very difficult to be with yourself, right? Not just by yourself, but with yourself. Now, I pre-recorded the Shadow Self episodes. I hope by now, if you're listening to this, you've listened to those. If you have not, go check out the previous three episodes in which I talked about um understanding the shower yeah understanding the shadow self embracing the shadow self and then alan watson the shadow self i don't mean just simply being with your other self because even though i talked a lot about shadow work and the shadow self part of the things that i realized in in this retreat is that there's just no self period so not only is your conscious self just complete illusion but in in many respects the shadow self is an illusion because if there's no self to begin with then you cannot have a a good side and a bad side right now that shadow work is not important it is important it is a step into getting to a place of realization that no self exists now i didn't start having this realization until the second day so the first day is still kind of going through just understanding what this experience is actually like, right? Because, you know, anytime you undergo any of this kind of stuff where you, you think about meditation and mysticism and psychedelics and you think about religious texts and you hear experiences of monks doing great feats in, in the Himalayas or whatever, like all these things are great in your mind, right? You, you create this idealized, romanticized version of what it would be like to be some enlightened being. And I'm not saying I achieve enlightenment, so I don't don't take me the wrong way when I say that. But you get all these ideas because you hope that you achieve those things in the process. And of course, all those ideas are also completely fake and illusory because they don't exist. But you can't get there from the beginning, right? You have to start somewhere. You have to you start, start with a base uh, in order to build up to the place where you realize there's no base at all, right? The groundless ground, as the Buddhists like to call it. And that first day was exactly that. 
he was realizing, man, like, there's people in history books, right, or religious texts that go to one of these solo meditation retreats, we'll say. Uh, they would have different names for it. But they go in, in the woods and fast for 40 days and 40 nights, right? Like Jesus did it, you know, Buddha was gone for years, like all this kind of stuff. And you're like, oh, well, that must be nice, right? Like you find some place to just be by yourself and somehow you'll, you'll become a better person, right? You get better out of it. And, and then you actually partake in the experience and you realize that doing nothing is so, so hard. It is extremely difficult to do nothing. And, and the reason I found it important to do nothing, and by do nothing I mean like, you know, no, no mindful walking through the woods, like no looking at the grass move around, like none of this. I, I literally just sat and stared into space for three days. That is literally what I mean. The only thing that I did was breathe and then at some point just naturally fell asleep. I don't know when I fell asleep or when I woke up. I, I know I drank water. I don't remember drinking water. I, this is what I'm talking about. No, no conscious feeling of any experience whatsoever. Now, when it got dark, it was nice because since I'm out, Kind of far out from civilization right this is i mean this is a a town there's a lot of people that live here but uh you know most of it is rural there's uh there's cattle and you know cotton fields and things like that and the place where i was at is surrounded by hundreds of acres of woods uh, even though there are people living here in houses there was there was very little light pollution, and so I was able to to see quite a bit in the sky, and uh, and it was beautiful. You know, at first I was like, was this going to happen? Right, the the expectation of something. I, I started to see it get dark, and you know, one star pops out, and two stars, and I'm like, well, I'm in the middle of nowhere. Surely there's going to be tons of stars. And yes, after it got dark, there were there were a lot of stars coming up in the sky, and it was beautiful to stare at those things. But I was still actively working on finding the experience. And I'm going to talk a little bit about this again on the next episode, the Psychedelic Experience episode. Because I think oftentimes when you want to get into any of this kind of work, self-improvement, self-development, trying to achieve some kind of mystical experience, some, some better understanding of self and the universe, you... You have a, a preconditioned expectation of results, and, and those results might not necessarily apply to you, for one. It might take longer for some than others. Some may have different experiences than others. Some may see things differently than others. And, and I realized that I was still going to, well, you know, if I stare at the sky, then you know, maybe I'll, I'll see what the constellations look like. Right? because I can see the stars now. And maybe I'll get to see like, you know, a comet go by or you know, whatever, any of these kind of things. And I had a lot of these experiences where I expected things to happen, right? I talked a little bit about the fasting. Part of the reason was, well, I hope that if I fast, number one, it'll kind of 
allow my body to kind of rejuvenate itself. Fasting does have that. It's a scientific fact. It's an effect of, of fasting and, and eating less where your body has time to repair itself because it's no longer working on processing extraneous material. So there was some of that. I also hope that maybe if I don't eat for a couple of days, I'll have some hallucinatory experience. Well, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll see something, right? I'll see the, the white lady or some whatever, a machine elf or something like that, right? This is the expectations I have on the first day. Now, the second day was actually a lot more interesting, and, and I'll just kind of tie in the, the remainder of the experience together because this is when things really started to click for me. And when my initial expectation of experience kind of started going away. Because this is when I started to realize several things. And, and it started in the morning, but really by, by the night, by that second night, is, is when things started clicking. And again, it was by looking at the stars. But when the second day came about, I, I felt much more comfortable with being here. And I felt more comfortable with sitting with myself. And I realized one really important thing. My entire life, I, I work my ass off. And I usually don't cuss on the podcast, so if that offends you, I apologize. But my entire life, I work my ass off. And I'm sure that many of you listening also work your ass off every single day. And I think that's something that's been instilled in me by my parents, just like everything else. And you know, my parents, we, we never had a lot growing up. I remember, you know, when I was, I don't know, five or six years old and I was living with my parents and, um, and we lived in this one bedroom apartment. Okay? One bedroom apartment, it was kind of, I guess like a studio, you could say. You walked in, there was a little kitchenette on the left. Uh, directly in front of me was my parents' bed to the left. Uh, past the kitchenette there was a door and that's where the bathroom was and that's literally the entire place so my parents had a bed and then I had a mattress and so at night I would pull the mat my mattress out from underneath their bed and that's where I would sleep and in the morning I would get up and I would put the mattress back underneath and get ready for school and, and go do that okay matter of fact I was probably even younger than that because I remember I was in preschool so this was been I was like four right we had nothing, and, and my parents worked very hard. Both my parents, I mean, I would say until I was maybe 10 years old, my parents worked at least two jobs, seven days a week, for at least that amount of time that I can remember, right? So if I remember from, from four to 10, uh, for those six years at least, my, both my parents worked two jobs, seven days a week. My mom's main job was a, as a beautician, and I remember during the summers, she would go away for the entire summer uh, because she would go work at a, a salon near a beach resort, and she would work there, you know, 16 hours a day, and, you know, they have a group of girls that go there, so you know, the, it's a group of girls living in an apartment. During the day, they work 16 hours a day at the salon. And, you know, take care of people that are going to this beach. It's a very large resort area. And then at night, they just go back to the place and go to sleep. And then, you know, repeat the next day and do this seven days a week the entire summer. And this was every summer that I remember for, for several years, my mom would do this. And uh, 
you know my dad my dad never finished he i don't think he even started high school i think my dad dropped out of school in eighth grade maybe ninth grade and his entire life was the same way right working two jobs whatever he could find right because he had no education and so it was always kind of trade jobs and and my dad was always kind of this guy that was kind of a master of of many trade or a, a, what, what's the saying kind of you know many trades but a master of none right the, the, my dad was this kind of guy right he worked in factories he he did odd jobs he did sales jobs sort of door jobs like the, you know this kind of stuff and you know he would go to work in the morning at four o'clock come home for lunch get his lunch and then go to the second job and come home you know at 11 o'clock at night and then repeat seven days a week so this is kind of how it was raised to have this mentality of of you always need to you you gotta bust your ass right there's no other way around it you gotta bust your ass you gotta continue to improve your lot of life because nobody's ever going to give you anything and so when I kind of became an adult and I started understanding what responsibility was like, I, I felt the same way. And, uh, and you know, I, I recently left a job that I'd been in for nine years, ten years. And uh, it, was, it was interesting to go from working, you know, six, seven days a week, uh, you know, 60, 70 hours a week sometimes, to now being at home all the time with the family uh, in many respects it's been it's been nice but it's also been kind of a a learning experience for me to to learn to not always be in the move and this is the mentality that I was brought up with you know and I'm sure many of you listening that's the mentality that you've been brought up with uh, you know my family's also immigrant an immigrant family you know we came here when I was nine years old uh, in the hopes that you know my parents could make a better life for themselves and and for myself and my brothers and and i think that's true i think that goal was achieved right and my brothers are all adults now you know, i'm married i have kids my my brother just got married and has uh, adopted kids uh, my youngest brother is uh you know he doesn't have kids he's not married but he's he's doing pretty well for himself after uh after some tough some tough times and um you know, things things are well, right? Everyone's got their own thing going on, and and we don't need to work two jobs, right? We're we're able to provide, but that mentality remains. Mentality remains, and it's a it's a tough mentality to break out of when it's kind of instilled in you your entire life, and and of course, in many respects, you don't want to let a parent down in this example right because they bust their ass to get you to where you're at so of course you feel the need to continue to bust your ass because number one it's what you're supposed to do number two you feel like maybe you owe it to them to get to, to continue that tradition I guess maybe in some respects you could say of course going through this experience I realize that maybe none of that is actually true but I'm not going to dive into that here. Like I said, I, I have at least a dozen episode ideas out of out of this experience. So I'll I'll get to duty and responsibility at some point in uh, in the future. But the one thing, of course, is always that you you don't have time, right? That's always the number one excuse. You you know your kids want to go to the mall. Well, I don't have time, right? 
I have to be at work or I'm so tired. I worked, you know, 80 hours this week. How dare you ask me to go to the mall? Uh, these, these are all things that we experience, right? And, and maybe if you don't have kids, you don't have that experience. Maybe it's something else for you, right? Maybe you just, you just don't want to go on a date with somebody, right? I'm so tired. I, I don't have time to go on a date. I have, to, I have to work because I have to pay for this apartment and this house and this house and this car and you know, my clothes and my shoes and food and I have to be able to eat out and do this, that, and the other. All these things are, are things that we worry about every single day. But let me tell you that sitting alone with myself, I, I very quickly realized how untrue all that is. How, just how much time there is. Just how much time there is. You know, a few weeks ago, I was talking to a friend of mine, and, and <laughs> he was talking about uh, you know, not having time to meditate. Right, don't have five minutes to meditate, and and of course the the reaction always when somebody says that they don't have time to meditate is that they need to meditate more. Right, if you don't have five minutes, that means you need to meditate for thirty minutes, right? Because you have to understand that there's there's plenty of time, and you know you can you can read books and and watch YouTube and listen to podcasts and go to lectures or you know whatever you can think about these things, meditate on them. It's one thing to know these things to be true. And it's a completely different thing to really know these things to be true. You know, this is, uh, I've compared this to, to, to the fact of walking the path and knowing the path, right? You can easily walk the path that's been laid out for you. That somebody has walked before you. Maybe they left you some nice signposts, right? Maybe it's a nice, a nice path that you're on, right? Maybe it's uh, there's gravel on it, right? It's not a muddy path. Maybe there's some gravel on it, or maybe it's uh, a concrete path. Maybe you're, maybe somebody even left you the keys to a nice car where you can just drive down this path, right? It's big enough for a car, and uh, and then you're you're safe from the elements, right? You just all you gotta do is stay on this path, right? Maybe they even made it easier for you. Maybe there's it's like a train, right? They built the track on this on this path, and all you gotta do is get on the little trolley and go choo choo, and just keep on going down the road. And it's a completely different thing to actually know the path, to understand the path, to know what lies ahead before you get there, to be the person that has to build this path. Yeah, you got to take your machete and walk through the jungle and chop down the vines as you go. And, you know, you, you lay down uh, pebbles behind you or, you know, you have a rope behind you so you know how to find your way back to, to the beginning of the path. So when you get to the end, you can go back and tell somebody else about this path. Two very different things. And let me tell you that just in the morning time, I don't know what time I woke up. It was dusk-ish, so I would assume fairly early, maybe 6, 7 o'clock in the morning, until what I would assume to be around noon. If you think about it just superficially, you're like, oh, yeah, okay, that, you know. Martin sat down and just kind of sat there for four or five hours. And sure, maybe that's what it was, four or five hours. Could have been less, could have been more, I don't know. Roughly that time. 
But when you actually are in that place where you have no other experience than the experience of being, the experience of just sitting, four or five hours is a complete eternity. It is a complete eternity. And I could I could talk about how long it feels to sit and do nothing for four hours. But unless you actually do that, you'll have no idea. And of course, at this point, I start getting thoughts in my head. Well, you know, what time is it? Because right? you're used to you check your phone, right? You get on social media. Maybe you check see what time it is. Or there's just natural cues that come about, right? Like, hey, let's go out to lunch. Okay, well, now you know it's lunchtime. So maybe it's like, you know, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. There's none of that. There's no social cues to kind of give you an idea of of when it is. Now, of course, once you're in this place for a little while, you do start understanding some of the natural cues, right? So everyone knows if the sun's directly above you, it's noontime, right? You know... If you're out in nature for a couple of days, certain birds only sing in the morning, some only sing at night, right? You might have some some bugs or whatever up in the trees or maybe frogs that start chirping when when it's high noon or, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon because it's the hottest part of the day and that's when they sing when it's the hottest part of the day. So you start getting some of these natural cues as to roughly what time it is, but you have no idea. And so by the second day, most of these thoughts had gone away except for this one thought. And it didn't happen all the time. It wasn't a, what time is it now? What time is it now? But, you know, every so often, I would get this feeling of like, is, is this day done yet? Is this day done yet? Can I, can I go to sleep now? Can I just stop existing and just go to sleep? Th these are the kind of ideas that popped into my head and i don't know if this is a common experience i assume it is but I, I don't know i've i've never read into other people's solo meditation experiences so i don't know i know that after a couple of days it does become increasingly hard because you start to really get into the groove of just being but boy is it hard to just be it's so difficult but that night it hit me that night it hit me because the sun went down and the stars started coming out and I could see the constellations and, and the one that I always remember very easily is Orion because of Orion's belt because I love the pyramids, right? I'm talking about ancient history again. That's one that's very easily recognizable. And, and when the stars were out, I, I found myself drawn to just staring at Orion's belt. And it was beautiful to just sit there and stare at the sky without a worry in the world. I mean, sure, like I was in the woods, and like I said, there's wild boar there, so, you know, wild boar were kind of vicious. What if they come and attack me? But I felt very safe and comfortable and just staring at the sky. And by staring at the sky, realizing how now I've made it an entire day in this place with myself. And I felt very accomplished by doing that. I did. 
I know maybe part of the experience of doing one of these limitation retreats is to kind of kill some of the ego self, right? And and I'll talk about that a little bit here in a bit. But I just I felt very accomplished that I was able to make it to through one entire day, right? This is the first full day that I'm there. And I noticed myself just staring at Orion's belt. And kind of losing myself in this focus state, this concentrated state, contemplative state, this, I guess you could say even a mindful state. And noticing that the next thing I know, Orion's belt is in a different part of the sky. Because when the, when the sun came down, it was far down on my left-hand side. I could see all three stars, but it was far down on the left. And as the night progressed, I, I saw it going up kind of, I don't know, a 60 degree angle maybe, a 50 degree angle. Can't, can't quite tell. But I, I started to notice that it was moving. And this is when I started to realize that I was looking at the experience entirely incorrectly. Now, that's probably the wrong word to use because I, that's not the feeling that I got. But, but this is when I realized that the expectations I had for the experience were completely irrelevant. It's when I started to realize that this whole time I was kind of expecting to go on this journey where I would learn about myself and just learn to ex you know be to just exist and when I realized that I don't exist that I don't exist I'm I'm just a figment of some higher imagination and yet, for some of you, that might sound weird. For some of you, you're like, oh my god, that's so awesome, I want to do it. However you feel about it is irrelevant. This is the exact thing that I experienced by noticing this constellation moving across the sky. Where I, I finally found myself achieving this kind of you know, I talked a little bit about this flow state that you get from concentration. You can go back and listen to uh, the concentration and meditation episode from a couple weeks ago. I found myself getting into that groove where I was no longer an active participant, an active experiencer, an active observer in this larger world, universe, that was around me. But when I started to realize that not only was there nothing to be observing, but that the thing that I was observing was me. I was just watching me. You know, this is probably what people refer to when they say, you know, like, we're all one, right? Everyone talks about this garbage, we're all one, right? Uh, that, that, I mean, that's kind of what it is, but it's, it's true. It's true. It's true. Okay? You don't need to believe me or anybody else that has talked about this kind of thing, but it's true. When you experience it, you know it to be true. And just the sheer amazement of realizing that is so profound and powerful. 
Because you know I've been I've been trying to do this kind of stuff for for decades now. Now I'm in my late thirties. I I started this journey twenty years ago. Trying to get a little bit of knowledge here. Trying to get a little bit of experience there. Try to do this kind of meditation, that kind of meditation. Breathe this way. Breathe that way. Hold my breath. Breathe really fast. Read books about Buddhism. Read books about Taoism. Read books about Hinduism. Read books about Theosophy, Christianity, mysticism, esoteric, everything. In the hopes to find some way to piece some kind of understanding of how any of this is possible. Now, over the last year and a half, I've experimented a lot with psychedelics in the hope that, uh, you know, that particular tool would would serve kind of as the shortcut to get me to a place of better understanding and, and yes it has and so has reading so has meditation so has all these things but how crazy that all it took for me to realize <laughs> all it took for me to realize is, was to do nothing <laughs> <laughs> 20 years of, of experience and all it took was two days of experiencing nothing and it's so hard when you realize that <laughs> it's all bullshit that none of it is real you know when when the Buddhists or the Hindus or anybody else talks about, you know, the world being an illusion, right? Or, you know, the Kabbalists talk about Ein Sof or, you know, the void, the nothingness. And you read and read and read and think about this stuff and you write about it and you do podcasts about it. You think to yourself, well, this, this can't be right. This can't be right. This has to be some kind of horseshit. This can't be real. How can how can the world be nothing? It's totally preposterous. Totally preposterous. Right? You wake up every day. Right? You get up. You go to the bathroom. Maybe you make yourself some coffee. Eat some breakfast. You go to work. Right? You talk to people. You drive in your car. You know. You go shopping. You buy clothes and whatever. Computers, video games books, comic books, whatever, right? you come home, you watch them, you enjoy them, read them, you spend time with your family, this, that, and the other, you're, you're constantly doing and experiencing things. How could it be that it's nothing? You know, you're probably sitting there right now, maybe you're driving to work, or you're having your lunch, or you're doing work where you listen to the podcast, or whatever, whatever it is that you're doing right now, you're sitting in your backyard, staring out into the woods. You're like, how can any of these people say that all of this is nothing, that it's all an illusion? It's obviously not. I see it. I feel it. I, I touch it. I taste it. I smell it. But the truth is that none of it exists. It's so crazy. But again, this is not something that you can read or learn about or practice it's just an experience, and one, one, one second it's here, and one second it's gone, and the next thing is here, and all of a sudden you're like, holy crap. <laughs>
all this time this is what I wanted. Now it's here. Is this what I want? Well, I'm going to tell you this is what I want. But you, you get these ideas. In particular, but in, when there's nobody around but you. You know, the Hindus have a, a really interesting idea about the way reality is structured. And, uh, and the way that they see it is that reality is just kind of like a, kind of like a play. You know, you're backstage and you put on your mask, right? Classical drama, you, you wear a mask on stage. You get up and put on your mask, you go out and you perform in front of everybody and everyone says, oh my god, what a great job, beautiful performance. <laughs> That's exactly how it is. That's exactly how it is. Every day we're just constantly performing. And the thing is, it goes beyond just that, right? It's not just the simple fact of... The world is an illusion. That's that's a pretty thing to say. It's a nice thing to say, right? It's, it sounds so great, so mystical, whatever. That's nice. But what what is the impact of that realization? Because it's not it's not a superficial thing. It's not like oh yeah, like you know, culture is a, is an illusion, right? It's something that we made up. Everyone's culture is different, so whatever. Let's be more relatives now. We're going to talk about moral relativism a little bit soon. I know I teased that a little bit in a, one of the recent episodes when I'm going to talk about uh, why why evil doesn't exist. We'll talk about moral relativism then. There's more to just this than realizing all of the stuff around you is fake. When I say fake, I don't mean like it, it's not real. Of course it's real. It's real to you, and that makes it real. You experience it, it's real because you experience it. Right? It doesn't need to be a physical, concrete object for you to experience it for it to be real. And I'm going to talk again a little bit about this when I talk about my psychedelic experience. And an object, an event, doesn't have to be a, a solid, physical thing directly in front of you for it to be real. You know, I don't understand why, why people have such issues with mystical experience and, and psychedelic experiences and the things that people see and, and hear and, and touch and, and feel when they're in these states, these altered states of consciousness. I don't even know why it's called an altered state. I feel like maybe this, the state that we live in every day is an altered state. And that state is the real state. And I never understood why that's so out of the ordinary, so uncommon, so less than I mean we we do this kind of thing all the time with things that are not physical concrete quote unquote real things and we never bat an eye about it think about you know things like love or hatred I mean you you can't touch those things you know them when you see them you feel them when you experience them but you can't you can't grab onto them Right? Like, sure, if you love somebody, you can hug them. If you hate somebody, maybe you want to punch them in the face. These things are true. But you, you can't grasp that feeling. Right? Think, about, uh, think about just a, a general idea like, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about democracy and racism and, and police brutality and defunding the police. Think about those ideas. Those aren't physical objects. Democracy is not a physical object that you can grab onto. But it's still real. It's still an object. It's a thing that you can objectify, right? It has, it has qualities that allow you to experience them. So, of course, they're real. 
what makes those things any more real than a psychedelic experience? What makes it more real than a mystical experience? And I should clarify, by the way, I did no psychedelics on this retreat. I, I played around with that idea months ago, and, and when I finally made up my mind about doing this, I decided I would not do it. Because I wanted whatever experience I was going to have during this retreat to be a pure experience and, and not jaded by any extraneous or external stimulus. You know, and the funny thing is when I when I realize it's it's all illusion, none of it's real. Physical or otherwise, none of it's real. I realized the funniest thing of all. You know, the past twenty years of my life I, I tried to do work to 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 lower my ego, to make it go away, to to learn what it's like to experience some universal truth, some some higher self, some better self, find ways to to improve myself, to better understand myself and and things around me, to be a better person. And I talked a lot about this during the the shadow self episodes. But the thing is, when you realize it's all illusion, you realize how how big a joke the whole journey is. How big a joke the entire journey is. To have spent countless hours trying to get rid of this I, the self, when it was never there to begin with. It's never there. It's crazy. But of course, it doesn't make that experience any less meaningful. So I want to make that perfectly clear. Because if at some point you truly know that it's an illusion, as opposed to reading it in a book or hearing it from somebody, when you truly know it and you experience it, you're not going to get there without actually walking down this path. Whatever path you decide to walk on, right? One that's made for you and more than you make yourself. Because <laughs> the joke is that in order for you to know that there is no self, you have to truly, fully understand who and what you are. And then when you truly understand that, you realize it just it doesn't exist, right? It's, it's just a fallacy, just an illusion. Because the reality of it is that we we look at this completely the wrong way. We look at this the completely wrong way. Even if you have, you know, a, a mystical streak in you, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, which means by extension you're not necessarily a materialist, right? If you're a purely scientific person, you're purely materialistic, all you believe is that there are physical things out in the universe, and of course Two seconds ago, I just told you that's completely preposterous because you see ideas as concrete objects all the time. The biggest fallacy is that you're not a thing. You're not a thing. You're, you're an event. You're an experience. You're an experience within an experience. You're, you're a drop in the ocean. And of course, water is the perfect metaphor for this, right? 
I recently talked a little bit about the heat problem, right? How do you know when a couple of grains of sand become a heap, right? You keep adding sand. When is it a heap? When is it not just, you know, some grains of sand? And same way the other way around. If you have you know, a bucket full of sand and you start taking grains out, at what point is it no longer a heap of sand and it's just, it becomes one grain of sand, right? That's that's probably the answer. At what point is a heap not a heap when it's just one one grain of sand? And and that's how it is with, with an ocean. At what point... Is an ocean not an ocean? I don't know. Maybe when there's only one drop. But the thing is, you can never have one drop. You never have one drop. Sure, like, I mean, you can take a dropper if you want. You can, just, like, measure out one drop. Or you can take, you can scoop out cups at a time up the ocean, and maybe at some point you'll get to a place where you no longer have an ocean. You may never find that thing. But the thing is, what defines it being an ocean is this collection of drops. And this is not some physical, tangible ocean that you can drive through, right? And you get on the sand and you watch the ocean, maybe you go swimming in. It's not that. This is the, the ultimate source, right? This is the ocean that I'm talking about. The ultimate source. An ocean of pure consciousness and all you are is one drop in this ocean of pure consciousness you're not a, a physical material that exists independent of anything else around you you're just the one drop in the ocean so when someone says well everything's one and it sounds hokey dokey it sounds kind of bs like they took too many drugs they smoked too much weed they whatever some cult leader brainwash them, whatever, whatever it is. You can have that experience. You can have that experience. And I know that you can have that experience because I just had that experience. The experience that I had, you know, uh, that I've wanted to have my entire life by doing all this work, I had by doing no work at all. Because I finally realized I am just one drop in this infinite ocean. And the thing is, no particular drop exists independent of this giant ocean. Now, this is probably some of you are going to start tuning out. If you haven't tuned out already, that's fine. I do this podcast for myself. I don't do this for people to listen. If that was the case, I would get on social media and talk about this all the time. I would buy ads. I would appear on every podcast on demand, whatever. I, I, I don't care about any of that stuff. I do this kind of as a, a journal for myself in, in the things that I like to learn and experience. But when you realize that you are just the one drop in the ocean, you realize that all that exists is the ocean. All that exists is the ocean. It is just one massive ocean of consciousness and all you are is not it's not a physical thing you are just one perspective of this ocean in terms of this collective ocean I am exactly the same as the cup of water that I'm holding in my hand right now there's no difference whatsoever the only difference is 
I'm the drop that's experiencing myself as a human being, as a separate self from you, or my wife, or my kids, or this cup in my hand. And my cup's perspective, the experience my cup is having, the experience the universe is having through this cup, is the experience of being a cup. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this when I talk about kind of understanding infinity. That's going to be a ways down the road because there's, there's a lot of other things before we get to that place that I want to talk about. But all any of us are are really just experiences, perspectives, Lone slices in, and I like I like this metaphor. Lone slices in an infinite film reel. I know I've teased a, a discussion on uh, Borges's DLF. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave this this metaphor there because it's very apropos to that particular work, and it's not generally seen as a particularly mystical thing, I guess. Although it it does play a lot with mystical themes and motifs so I'll be doing that uh, in a few weeks so now there's further implications to all this because it it, it doesn't stop it, it goes infinite right it's an infinite film reel so it goes up to infinity and down to infinity and so the first realization was I don't exist and then none of this exists None of these physical things around me exist. And the next thing was realizing that this passage of time doesn't exist either. There's no such thing. It, it cannot exist when you realize the first thing to be true. If the first thing is true, then the second thing must be true. And by extension, the third thing must also be true. That time doesn't exist. That's that's not true. It doesn't exist. I've been saying this as a complete joke for, I don't know, two years now. Two, three years. Started off as a joke on a different podcast. It has evolved over time into just a thing that I am known to say doesn't exist. It's become a joke with my wife because if if we're late to something, I'm like, eh, whatever. Time doesn't exist. It's it's always it's be, just become a joke. But again, it's a thing of walking the path and knowing the path, and simply by observing this constellation moving across the sky is when I realize that it it's not real. It's also an illusion. Because the thing is. And I'll, I'm going to go deeper into this as a solo episode uh, fairly soon, probably by the end of August. We were always conditioned that events follow a progression, that everything has some sort of causation. Right? That's one of the laws of physics, right? For every action, there's an equal or opposite reaction. And yes, that is true in a purely physical realm. Right? If I if I grab my phone, it lifts. Right? If I let my phone go, it, it drops onto my desk. Okay? 
if I'm driving down the street in my car and I decide to drive into a tree, my car gets crushed and I may get hurt and maybe the tree falls down. If I decide to get really angry for whatever reason, I haven't done my shadow work, I get very angry, I decide to punch somebody in the face because they're, they're being complete a-holes, I punch them in the face, by that law, there's an equal opposite reaction. So the force that I hit them in the face is the force that my hand receives and it goes up my arm into myself, right? Straightforward science. These things are all true. But in the ultimate aspect of things, whether that's true or not is completely irrelevant. Because no one thing causes another to happen. No one thing causes another to happen. Why is that? Because we're all drops in an ocean, an infinite ocean. So really the problem is not so much why we can't understand how things work, but the problem is that the, the basis that we use to form an opinion on why those things work is completely flawed. Because we think of things as things, as physical things. And they're not physical things, they're experiences, they're events that are happening, popping in and out of existence at all times. Now, one of the things that I'm really interested with is, is language. And so, you know, sometimes when I talk about some of these things, I'm sure some of you are, are thinking in the back of your head, like, you know, you, you're kind of playing word games with, with how words are defined, they're used in particular contexts. And maybe some of that is true, right? Like, these are old word games. Right? Calling something an illusion as opposed to a physical material object is, is a word game. But that's, that's the way we have to communicate. There is no other way for me to communicate these things without using words. I mean, maybe if, like, telepathy is real and I was able to telepathically project thoughts into your brain, it would be a, a better way to communicate. But we, we don't have that. I mean, it depends who you ask, right? Some people believe we do have that. But I've always had a, a fascination with language, and, and conlanging in particular, the, the art of constructed languages. I, I don't know how big this is anymore. I, I would assume it's still fairly small. I don't hear talking, people talking about conlanging. But uh, many, many years ago, I used to be very fascinated with, with conlangs, constructed languages. And, and that's just like it sounds. It's people that create their own languages to fulfill a particular need, right? So you might be working on some fantasy story like, like Lord of the Rings. Tolkien created Cinderin you know, and all these other languages. These are conlangs. Right? You can watch a show like The 100 or Game of Thrones. You know, you have Dothraki and Grounder and these kind of languages on there. Uh, both created by the same guy, by the way. He's fantastic. Um, but there's there's a group of people that have this kind of hobby. And I, I had this hobby. I was, I was fascinated with conlanging. And I was never particularly good, and I never really finished any particular language that I worked on. But I was always fascinated by how language is created. And, and that's really the, the impetus for a lot of people that get into conlangs is understanding how languages emerge and form, right? And this is beyond just studying linguistics, although I'm sure there's many linguists that are conlangers as well. 
for many people it's a hobby and, and for me it was a hobby and one thing that I was wondering about is well you know what would a language without nouns look like or a language without verbs or what if there were no time tenses right or uh, what if there were no adjectives or you know if it was an agglutinated language right like you added suffixes and prefixes uh, and of course that got me into like Saber Wharf Hypothesis and all this stuff. Uh, one of my favorite movies is The Arrival and it deals a lot with Saber Wolf Hypothesis about how language either influences or creates the way that we perceive the world around us. Right, so there's a strong version of Saber Wolf in which it says that the language that you have completely creates the world around you. And there's the weak version in which it says it just merely influences it. And, you know, there's many different languages studied as a result of this, like Piranha. It's a, a language from the Amazon. Uh, they don't have, uh, like, colors, right? They just have light or dark. There's no colors. Does that mean that they don't see red or silver or blue or bronze, black, whatever? I mean, there's no way to tell, right? Because they don't have words for those things. They just simply have light or dark. Right, so you know a Coke can is not red and and white. It's uh, it's light and dark. Or there's a there's a particular Aborigine language. They don't have cardinal directions. Right. There's no uh, there's no left or right or up or down or forward backwards. It, it's purely cardinal. Sorry, my apologies. So all they all they know is not left or right, but they know east, west, north, south, and all the variations in between. So if you're talking to somebody that speaks this language, they're not going to say, you know, hand me the uh, cup of water to your left. They'll they'll always know exactly which direction they're facing, and so they'll say, hand me the cup of water on your northeast. Now that seems kind of preposterous to us, but you know, if you're in a natural environment, say an environment that's largely desert where there's no way to orient yourself but through the sun, it makes perfect sense that so that's what you use, right? Because if you say, you know, the water well is, you know, on your left 100 feet, well, that means one thing, but you know, what if I turn around? It's not on my left anymore, so. If I lost my way, how am I going to find the water? I, I'm not, so I die. Right? So they've developed this language that has very precise way to orient yourself in this kind of harsh environment. And there's many other ones like this. But uh, there's, to my knowledge at least, no, no natural language that, uh, that is purely nouns or verbs. I think there's a, I think there's a, an Indonesian language that's pretty close. Uh, I've heard some some studies done on this language. It, it says that there's no nouns or verbs, but that's kind of conjecture, right? It depends on how you you define those things. And there is ways to communicate without the way that we always communicate with, right? We always assume that there is a yeah, again, this kind of works to maybe prove, at least partially, the savior work hypothesis. Every single human language has a combination of both of these things. There are things and there are actions, and things perform actions. 
They perform actions on themselves and on other things, but they, they don't belong independent of each other. Uh, there is a there's a conlang called Kellen that's uh, a little bit different than this. There are no verbs in this language. That's also kind of debated. Uh, some people say that there are verbs, but only a couple, uh, four actually. Uh, and the way that it does this is uh, there's only nouns, and they use what are called relationals. And uh, these relationals just kind of show some way in which these nouns interact. And the uh, relationals kind of uh, talk about existence, so to be, basically. Uh, there's one like to give or to receive or maybe to experience. Uh, there's one like to have. And I can't remember the, what the fourth one is. But the reason I bring this up is because maybe part of the reason that we don't really understand this ultimate nature of things is because the language that we have created for ourselves doesn't allow us to think in in this regard it it only allows us to think in terms of things doing actions things affecting other things and not things not being things but being actions themselves things being actions themselves things being simply events because if this is the case there's no such thing as causality things do not cause other things to happen things just happen and of course for our brains that's very hard to understand because in our everyday lives we always see things acting upon other things things aren't just doing things things affect other things but in reality, none of this is true, right? So let's go back to this, this thing about being angry and wanting to punch somebody, okay? I don't know why I feel drawn to this particular metaphor right now. If I'm angry and I decide to punch you, right? In our typical language, that's the way we look at it. I, I make a fist and the fist punches you, okay? I, I hit you, I punch you. That's the words we would use. For one, we don't say, like, my hand hit you, right? You say you hit that person because you made that conscious decision to, to hit that person. Now, when you hit that person, what do you use? You use your fist, right? So you punch them in the face with your fist. But the thing is, your fist is not a thing. Your fist is not a thing. Because if you decide to open your fist up it's it's not just your hand it's not a fist anymore now it's your hand and your hands connected to your arm your arms connected to your torso your torso is connected to the rest of you and that makes all of you so there's no such thing as a fist it's more like your hand i guess you can't even do that your hand is fisting okay maybe that's the metaphor your hand is fisting and in that regard, you're not a thing. It's just the universe martining or johnning 
or marrying or Jennifering, whatever whatever. It's not a separate individual. It's an event because at that particular moment, that's what the universe is. And you say to yourself, well, yeah, but, you know, I'm here for 80 years, 90 years. Like, I'm a thing. I'm a physical thing. And, okay, maybe that's the experience that you have because that's the emerging experience the universe has chosen to be at this particular moment, in this particular time, in this particular piece of space. But, you know, even if the universe is only 14 billion years, what is 80, 90 years in relation to that? It's not even in a blink of an eye. A blink of an eye is, would be longer than your 80 years in the 14 billion years of universal existence. Now, I talked a little bit about this previously. I, I Even I think that's wrong. I, I don't think 14 billion years is right. I think that's simply the the amount of space that we are able to see with our limited instrumentation and maybe at some point we realize that you know that's preposterous it's a hundred billion years a hundred trillion years an infinite number of years i mean at that point it doesn't really matter how how long the universe existed is completely irrelevant what does that prove to you what how does that improve your place in it knowing that it existed for 14 billion years or an infinite number of years and it will continue for an infinite number of years you're just a drop in the ocean and completely irrelevant and i think part of the problem part of the reason why we choose not to accept these things is not so much that there's no proof i mean for for some of us maybe there is a need to have some concrete evidence for these things to happen you can't just say the in the universe is infinite and it's been here forever. It's preposterous. I mean, maybe. But what if it's not preposterous? You know, a thousand years ago, people thought that the, the world was 6,000 years old. Now we think that's preposterous. Now we have better instruments and we say 14 billion years. And maybe in a thousand years, those people will say, well... <laughs> These people in the 21st century, how stupid, how preposterous. They would think it's only 14 billion years. The thing is, we don't know, and, and we'll probably never know. Because the thing is, when you start looking for these answers, you'll find that you never find the true source of the question. You never find the answer. You just find more questions. Yeah, you know, the Greeks were perfectly happy with, with matter just being made up of atoms. Right? The atomos is where it comes from, from the Greek. They were perfectly happy with that. There was a little, everything, all the physical matter was just made of these little balls called atoms. Perfectly happy with that. And then we got curious and we we're like, well, what if there's something smaller than atoms, right? So you find, uh, you find protons and neutrons and you find electrons even though technically we've never found an electron because we can't see them found electrons and then you say well there's got to be more than that right we used to think it was just atoms now we have protons and neutrons and electrons maybe those things have things that are made out of them and so we find you know we find quarks we have up quarks and down quarks and strange quarks and we find neutrinos and this then and you find more and more stuff oh well well, the quarks are made of, of smaller quarks. 
And then those are made of smaller things and smaller things and smaller things. And at some point, you realize, well, we're never going to hit the ground. You know, you have you have things like the Planck constant or, you know, Planck time. I love Planck time. Planck time is like infinitesimally small, right? It's like 10 to the negative 35 seconds. It's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a second. According to science, that's the smallest bit of time. But probably only the smallest bit of time that we can measure. What if in a hundred years or a thousand years or ten thousand years we find something smaller than Planck time? In physics they talk about like quantum foam, right? So the quarks, the quarks are made of quarks and those quarks are made of smaller quarks and they're smaller quarks. But there is a, a fundamental thing, it's quantum foam. All right, well, you know, what if we find out that quantum foam is made out of something else? And the same goes in the other direction. It's not just going smaller, it goes bigger. Right? We before used to think that the, the universe revolved around the Earth, right? And uh, sure, like there are planets in the sun, there are the Earth, but there was nothing else beyond that. Right? It's just like the ether. It was a, an ocean. It was surrounded by an ocean all around us. Then we got better instruments, and now we know, well, the solar system is part of a galaxy, and the galaxy has trillions of solar systems in it. And it's, you know, it goes around the black hole. Well, you know, that's not the ultimate thing, because there's trillions and trillions of galaxies, and, and that encompasses the universe, right? And that's all there is, the universe. Well, what if the universe is just like... A solar system within a galaxy. What if there's universes orbiting around bigger universes, comprised of even bigger universes? And you can you can go any direction you want. And you can take analogies like uh, you know the people used to think uh, I think in in India that uh, that the Earth was being held up by four elephants and and. You know, I guess that makes as much sense as anything else, right? I mean, we we assume the universe is kind of made of this all this invisible stuff that we can't see or perceive. We can kind of detect with computers, but like, uh, what does that mean? What if the computers are wrong? What if I don't know? You can go any direction with this, right? But they they wanted a simple solution. They knew elephants, so okay, well the Earth is sitting upon elephants. And then somebody said, well, I mean that's awesome. But, like, are the elephants just floating in space? What are the elephants sitting on? And somebody said, oh, well, it's elephants sitting on a turtle. Because, of course, right, people know turtles, so the elephants are on a turtle. And, and that worked great for a while, but then somebody's like, well, okay, so the earth is on elephants and the elephants are on a turtle. But, like, what's the turtle standing on? Are there any turtles? Like, is it just in space? And somebody's like, well, don't be stupid. Like, the turtle's sitting on a bigger turtle, right? And so you go to infinity, right, with this kind of logic. No things cause each other because they're simply events in an ever-flowing ocean of events. So all events influence each other because they're all one thing. I mean, when you go out into the ocean and you look at a wave, you don't say, well, you know, like, what's causing that wave? 
what's causing this wave. We just know that the wave exists. Where you decide to place the beginning or the end of any of these events is completely arbitrary. Now you can use a, a measurement of space, right? The wave is 10 meters tall. Well, that's cool. But like, where does the wave end and begin? Does the wave uh, does the wave end when it hits the top of the ocean, or does the wave go beneath it? Right? It's like an iceberg. If you look at an iceberg, some of it is above the water, and the majority is below the water. Well, does the iceberg start at the water level, or does it go below it? You look at the Earth. Well, how big is the Earth? Right. So you have a, a circumference for the Earth. All right, well, how far does it extend into space? Well, now we get into kind of the heat problem. Because you say, oh, well, you know, the atmosphere is, uh, whatever, 50 miles up in the air. Well, okay. Well, like, that's only part of the atmosphere. What about, you know, the stratosphere? Oh, yeah, so, okay, it goes 100 miles above the Earth. Okay, but, but there's no place, if you get into a rocket ship and you shoot yourself into space, there's no place at which the Earth stopped being the Earth it's the heat problem. Because the, the atmosphere is not like a shell, right, where you can just like break through it. It just like gets progressively thinner and thinner and thinner. So at what point are you no longer on the Earth? At, point are you, at what point are you in space? And you, know, you can easily argue you right now sitting or standing or driving or whatever you're doing are literally in space. Because you're not inside the Earth, you're above it, and all that's between you and infinite space is just a couple molecules. So it never stops. You want to take some more philosophical thing? There's a, a lot of racial tensions now in in the United States. You know, when does begin? Did they start as a result of George Floyd and all that stuff? Uh, maybe. Where did that start? Well, you know, people are kind of cooped up at home because coronavirus and they can't go anywhere and so they need to find some outlet of aggression. That's something that's been deep-seated and, you know, you get racial tensions popping out. Okay, well, where did that start? Right, and so you go back to the 60s and the civil rights movement and all this stuff. Okay, well, that's not really where that started. Where did that start? And you can go back to you know, the Civil War and freeing the slaves. Okay, but where did that start? You go back, you know, three, four hundred years to when slaves were brought to America. Well, it didn't start there either, right? Because there was already slavery somewhere else. So at what point does today's racial tension mean that there's like a, a physical event that started this whole thing? There's no such thing. There's no. There's nothing that started it. It's an ongoing process, just like everything that goes on around you. It's an ongoing process coming in and out of existence at all times. And the thing is, we can't understand it because, number one, we don't have the language to express it. Number two, we don't have the senses to experience it. And the thing is, we always want to experience, and the only way to experience that the universe is solely made of experience is to not have experience at all. Completely preposterous, right? Completely preposterous. But when you realize there's no such thing as causality, no events impacting other events, no physical things acting on other physical things, that's when you really become free. And when you become free, you realize you're not free at all.
You're just a drop in an infinite ocean of experience. Now that might seem really pessimistic, really negative, with the implications of that, right? Because I'm basically saying you have no free will. You you don't have the not only just not have the right, you don't have the ability to create your own experiences. That's exactly what I'm saying. And that might seem negative to some folks. The implications of a lot of this stuff is really negative because we forget about these things. I talk about this a little bit during the shadow work episodes. Now, everyone always wants to be good. You want to do good. You want to do good things. You want to love each other. You want to help each other. Nobody ever says, oh, let's all get together and hate each other. I mean, I guess maybe like, I don't know, maybe some like white supremacist group too, right? Let's get together and, and go punch a black person. I don't know. Maybe they say that. I don't know. But most people don't say that. You never hear about people getting together and purposely hating things. Purposely wanting to destroy things. Purposely wanting to lie. Purposely wanting to hurt others. And no religion practices that, right? I mean, you can say maybe like Luciferianism, Satanism, right? The, the LeVay stuff. Maybe you could say that they're just extremely selfish. But even they don't want to hurt anybody. Right? That's one of their commandments. You don't believe me, go look it up. Even they don't want to hurt anybody, right? Every, every religion, every philosophical system has this thing where you want to conserve the group because if there's no group, there's no group to continue this idea. I mean, I don't want to get into memetics, but that's where we get into if you, if you go into that. Memetics is a fascinating subject. I highly urge somebody to, to go and, and study up on that. But this is how ideologies work. Ideologies want to spread themselves. They don't want to kill themselves. I mean, if they kill themselves, they will be around, right? You you look at some of these groups like uh, what, what's the one with the com the Hale-Bopp comet? I can't remember now. But that that group would never last, right? Because the ultimate philosophy of the group is we're gonna go and get into spaceships. And how do you do that? Well, you commit suicide. So, I mean, you can't have kids and you commit suicide. That's going to be a very short-lived movement. And so it's very hard to realize that all the stuff that you want to do to become a quote-unquote better person leads you to the ultimate realization that, well, that's a stupid idea because there's no person, and so why am I wasting my time? Now, I'm not going to give you an answer as to why you're wasting your time. Because that's part of the experience, is realizing why you're wasting your time. But maybe at some point in, in a future episode, in the far-flung, non-existent future, we can, uh, we can talk about some of these things. That's, uh, that's going to wrap up this episode. I, I hope you enjoyed this rather lengthy discussion of my solo meditation retreat. I, I was not expecting this to be a two-hour episode, so I apologize for that. Uh, maybe once I do some editing, it'll be a little bit shorter, especially when I take out some of the pauses. But I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you learned something. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to recommend you go and do the solo retreats. I mean, I want to, but uh, but the thing is, you know, these things are very personal, and and I don't ever want to be liable for anyone doing the wrong thing. You know, and then I'll I'll reiterate this on the next episode when I talk about psychedelics. 
I I never like to talk about my my psychedelic ritual or the combination of things that I do or the chemicals that I might use, plants that I might use. Because different people react differently to different things. And and the same is true of any of this kind of work. So some of this stuff seems rather harmless, right? Like sitting down and meditating for 5-10 minutes. That's pretty harmless. You can't hurt yourself there. But with some, some of the, the more advanced techniques that uh, people might use to alter their conscious experience of reality, it uh, it becomes a different story. And... <laughs> I mean, with the, the amount of work and, and the amount of psychedelics that I've tried as a, a ritual over the past 18 months, to to have such realizations in such a short amount of time is uh, is really profound. So if you, if you do want to get into this kind of uh, experience, then I highly do your research. Uh, expect you to do your research, read some books, listen to people's experiences, see how you know you might react, meditate over it. Maybe you want to pray over it. I don't know. Whatever, <laughs> whatever works for you. But uh, it is a, a very rewarding experience, and I, I look forward to what the next chapter is going to be for me as a result of this experience. So, if you want to get in touch with me, Twitter is always the best place at Mind Alchemical. I'm on Instagram, thechemicalmind.com. And email is a fantastic place, martin at theochemicalmind.com. If you want to leave a voicemail, you can head over to anchor.fm. Just get the uh, in the show description, there's a link. Get on that link, you can leave me a voicemail, and I'll be more than happy to play it on the show as well. I will be back in a few days with my psychedelic experience. I hope I can do some justice when I try to explain it. Uh, but that's going to be it. As always, remember that you are it. Mm-hmm.